All right, Sergey Ross back here with the Media Camp in episode number seventy-two. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. This show is all about creating content, building a brand, and telling your story—not only from the company perspective, but also from the personal perspective. And I wanted to say that I'm not going to be talking just about the tactics here, and I don't think it really is my style, to be honest. There are other shows where, if you're a marketer, if you're a content creator, you can get. A really good content that says, "Hey, these are the ten steps: one, two, three, four, five. This is what you do." I prefer, and I think I'm a big believer in context. I like to know the context. I like to hear the stories of people, where they came from, how did they come to that point where they applied these steps. I think it's really important to have not just the framework, not just the tactics, but also understand the context of the person. And so that's why I spend time. In this on this show, asking people questions around, well, what is their career decisions? What how they have、uh, come from being a VP and at a large company to being a VP at a startup? Because all of these things they really really matter. And I have seen time and time again where content creators are asking questions. Well, how do I build a brand for my company that is differentiated? And they want the framework, they want the steps, but. It doesn't really exist. Like there's just so many variety, like variety, so so many things that are really different. Let's say you're building it for a new category. Well, then you need like an enemy. You need like Andrew Raskin style framework,、um, possibly. If you're building it for your, let's say, website development company, then that's going to be different. Then there's no like there won't be the enemy. Like there are certain principles that you need to understand, like knowing your customer, knowing your value prop, knowing how you're different for sure. But They're like the steps. Sometimes are like just not that clear as we want them to be.、Uh, so that's one of the reasons the tactics is a part of the show. It's not the full show. So with that said, we are talking about unscalable marketing tactics here. Not only that, but also some of the other cool facts about Allison Simpson. I think you're gonna like this episode. Here we go. Okay, I'm here with Allison Simpson, the CMO at a real estate startup, Key Living. Allison, great to have you here on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for the introduction. So I started talking to my guests and opening with a question that is other than "How are you? How's your week? How are things、uh, during the lockdown?" So、uh, this one is: I'm curious, what are you going to say to that question? What was the last gift you gave to somebody? Oh, I love that question, and I'm so over talking about the pandemic and working from home five months in. So, thank you for a fresh thought.、Uh, so, it's also a timely question. I have one of my nephews staying with us for a few days before he goes off to do his master's of aeronautical engineering.、Uh, so, we have gifted him、uh, with a lovely watch,、uh, and we're spoiling him rotten over the next few days、uh, because it's going to be his last sort of vacation and fun.、Uh, and Before he's completely heads down working away,、uh, so it was great to give him a memento that he will take with him for years to come, and also to have a lot of fun with him. Oh, he'll definitely need that, like <laughs> with、yeah. all the business schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about、uh, let's talk about before we jump into your work with Key. I wanted to talk about your past experience with Holt Renfrew, is specifically. You were running this、uh, very exclusive events, and then you were doing this this loyalty program. How those experiences were unique、uh, that you were doing for your members, and what can we learn from that as as marketers? 
So I was the SVP of marketing and customer experience at Holt Renfrew at a time when they had been the only luxury retailer in the country and were the go-to place. Um, but at the time that I joined them, Saks and Nordstrom's had both entered the market and a number of luxury, uh, independent luxury brands were starting to open up e-commerce into Canada as well as bricks and mortar into Canada. So it was an amazing time to go in and take this brand that's literally older than the country and help them evolve and stay current and relevant and continue to grow and thrive. Uh, a big part of what I did was launched a new experiential loyalty program. So it wasn't the traditional points-based program and it had several different levels, uh, including at the highest level for our, our biggest customers, uh, it had highly, highly personalized one-off experiences. And I can give you a couple of examples if you're... Please. Your listeners are into uh, fashion and luxury. Uh, they might be drooling a little bit because I know I was. <laughs> we would figure out what our favorite, the favorite designers of our best customers were, if they had particular dreams about going to a certain fashion show, and we would actually facilitate them going and meeting one-on-one -on -one with their favorite fashion designers wherever they happen to be based in the world and get a customized tour around the showroom be one of the first people in the world to see the new brands and designs that were coming out and have that one-on-one -on -one interaction with designers or we also had customers who wanted to go to milan fashion week so they would go with our head merchant and actually be front row with the best in the industry seeing those fashion shows in person mm -hmm. So those one-of-a-kind experiences that they wouldn't, no matter how much money they had, they couldn't get access to themselves. For us to be able to enable their access into those one-of-a-kind and behind-the-scenes types of experiences uh, made them incredibly loyal to us and also gave them pretty incredible stories to go and share on their social media, to share with their friends and family, and to really advocate on our behalf. So we saw a lot of significant business benefit to taking that highly curated approach. And we saw the people that were part of our loyalty program, they weren't all obviously at that level, but across the board in every level of the loyalty program, they dramatically increased the number of times each year that they were shopping with us. And we also significantly increased the amount of money they were spending with us. So despite Saks and Nordstrom's and a lot of other brands now being available to them, they really not only stayed loyal to Holt, but actually gave us more business as a result of that. Uh, so that was highly scalable. And then we would also do a number of different events. So we would have designers come to Toronto and those would be open to a bigger audience of Holt shoppers, certainly key influencers from across the country and journalists who could do a good job of helping us get this, our story out as well. So those were some of the fun opportunities I created when I was at Holtz. And I think uh, one of the things also just comes to mind is I did a little bit of research at a certain point uh, of my career into this fashion industry. And it's, it's so incredibly difficult and incredibly competitive to sell that these products, they might seem easy, right? You're, you're selling an expensive bag or expensive dress, but marketing that is so difficult, especially if you are talking about, if we were talking about like not the top, top level, top, top level customers, but just a little bit below that, like how do you differentiate yourself from the sea of other alternatives that people have that where they can just log into any website effectively and then just buy it from there, right? 
it's a great observation when I was first joined the company. Um, and remember, this is literally a brand that's older than our country. So you would think they had a very well articulated and understood brand. But when I got there and started digging into it, um, that, that actually wasn't the case. So there was a lot of awareness for Holt Renfrew, but a lot of our customers couldn't really explain what made them different. They, they had won a lot of their business because they were the only choice. So as that was changing, the brand really needed to be much more differentiated. And when I looked at luxury retail and luxury brands worldwide, um, there was an unbelievable sea of sameness. So everyone was talking about the same product features and talking in a very rational way about something that at its essence is not a rational decision. Let's be honest. No yes. one needs to spend $800 on a pair of shoes. You're not doing that for any rational reason. You're doing that for highly emotional and emotive reasons. And when I talked to a number of our customers and what they loved about Holtz, it was the, the word, the language they used was aspirational and emotive. They talked about feeling like swagger certified and on top of their game. So it was all very emotionally described and the fact that our brand could make them feel like they owned the runway, whether it was the runway into a corporate office or the runway into a great event. Mm -hmm. um, so what I then did was help redefine the brand in a way that really talked to that emotional high that you get from shopping and luxury and was a very effective way to differentiate Holt and really to drive that deep in that relationship we have with our customers. It wasn't as much about the product because the reality is they could get up most of the products you can get at Holt Renfrew now online or the, a, lot, a lot of our customers travel a lot so they could buy it in New York or England or Tokyo. Uh, so we really needed to connect on a very emotional way to give them reason and heart to come to Holt instead of all of the other options that they had. And I'm thrilled to say that despite it being an incredibly competitive industry, it was even more competitive in Canada at that time with two global brands entering the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, under my leadership, we were able to increase sales by 20%. That's, that's huge. That, that's, that... Without, that's without increasing the budget too, which is not easily done. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it a lot of it is is the focus, right? Just picking those few battles, not being everywhere, but like you did, you did events, then you did uh, some of the like. What were some of the other things that like you had a loyalty program? What are some of the you would say key touch points that you found were drivers for repeat purchases? So a big part of it was also understanding who the customer was, because if you only define a luxury shopper as someone who made hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, you would be missing the mark. There are a lot of people that make a great deal of money and they just don't care about fashion. That's not important to them. And there are also a lot of people that make significantly less money and so much of their personal brand is tied up into how they look and the brands they wear and being seen by their friends and network as very stylish and fashion forward. Uh, so a big part of what drove the success was understanding that segmentation and understanding it wasn't just on dollars. We had a number of customers who would happily give up owning a car or dinners out to save enough money to buy that brand new branded designer handbag or wear that $800 pair of shoes. That's and there also, yeah, exactly. And there are also a lot of very wealthy Canadians who even if, even though they had the means, it just wasn't important to them. So really understanding 
who your audience is and what's relevant to them and customizing our message accordingly was very important. Some, some of the other marketing tactics that worked really well, obviously social media, but that certainly wasn't just to, for luxury fashion, but how we leverage social. So beyond the online engagement and communities that we built, we also found reasons to get people to come into our stores. So uh, we did one campaign where uh, we had some of our customers were our models. And in each of our stores, we recreated that scene and invited people to come in with their friends or on their own and be the models in that setting. They could take, we took a picture of them, they shared that on their social media, so that helped get our story out. And there was just a, a reason to come into the store and have some fun. And once they were in the store, the likelihood of them walking around and finding something that they wanted to buy was very high. So that That's was another way that we could do it. It shows such a very deep level of understanding of your audience, like what's important to them, right? Like if they're going to go to an event, why would they go? What's, what are the drivers that they have that like the, the certain feeling they're going after? You're absolutely right. And PR was a big piece of it too, because our, our marketing budget at Holt Renfrew actually wasn't very big and we did not spend much of it in traditional media at all. So it really was more around leveraging PR, creating those events, where the people attending and participating in the events got our message out for us, which is always a more credible way to learn about a brand and uh, have credibility as a brand than what we're saying about ourselves. And what was interesting about it, Allison, is that you spent so much time of your career in this SVP roles in this large, like massive companies, Apple, uh, Holt, and now you actually transition to being in a startup. It's a big transition, but it's also very interesting to me just because of what you're doing and some of your taxes, tactics, which we'll dive into later. It's so similar. There's concepts or principles that are similar. Talk about your transition from large company to a startup and a little bit about what are you doing at Key? Happily. So uh, the first part of my career was agency side. So I had the pleasure of working on very different brands, very different industries, both consumer and B2B, and brands of very different sizes. So I did get some exposure to early stage and startup businesses through that. Uh, and then um, before I officially joined Key, I'd actually started my own fractional CMO consultancy where I was really specializing in early stage companies and startups. And I had a number of clients who wanted me to join them full time, but I my business was going well, I was really enjoying it, and I loved the diversity. And then I had a recruiter reach out to me about Key, and I basically said the same thing. It's like, you know, I really love what I'm doing, so if they want a full-time CMO, it's, I'm not the person, but I'd be happy to recommend you to others. And the recruiter very smartly said, why don't you just meet the co-founders? <laughs> so in my head, I'm thinking, sure, I'll meet the co-founders because maybe they don't need a full-time CMO, maybe they can become my next client. So I went in with that as sort of my agenda. And then after meeting uh, Daniel and Rob, the co-founders, learning more about their vision for Key and really the massive need that Key is positioned to address. Um, it took a number of meetings to get me there, but it didn't take that many meetings uh, before I was saying, you know what, I really buy into this vision and this need and I buy in it, into it to the point that I am actually going to close my consultancy, transition my clients to other um, colleagues in my network, and then join Key full-time. 
Uh, that led to some fascinating conversations with my other clients who had also approached me about full time. So that, that was a, took a little bit of diplomacy, um, but it's, it has absolutely been the right decision. How do you find, Alison, like this transition? I've talked to a number of marketers who do that, who make some of them make this transition or most of them, some of them do not. What do you think or what is what was the driver for you to actually give up some of that choice that you had when and, and the breadth of your portfolio to to start doing uh, the full time thing? So for me, it was the size of the opportunity and the diversity of the opportunity. It was also the, the chance to create and define a brand in Canada and then scale it globally. Uh, and I find the, the longer I worked, the more senior I became. The quality of the people that you work with, the diversity of the people that you work with uh, are become incredibly important in any career decision. And just the caliber of colleagues that I have at Key and the size of the opportunity for what we're building uh, really is such a rare opportunity that it, it wasn't that hard a decision at all. And then the other piece I will say, because you make a very good point around it can, when you're working in a bigger company with, I've run teams of 160 people and 90 people. So I've had great internal resources to work with. In a startup, I was the one and only marketer. Now I have, we've doubled our size. Now I have a great marketing manager named Louisa. We are going to scale quickly, but the reality of being a one woman show and now a two woman marketing team is you are doing absolutely everything. So lots of people say, oh, I'm happy to roll up my sleeves. The reality of rolling up your sleeves in a startup is fundamentally different. So if you don't have the appetite to do that, um, you probably won't last long. And then just the willingness to learn. I am doing things that I had teams within my team managing on my behalf before. So now I'm going much deeper into everything from social media and research, everything. Uh, so you have to be willing to relearn skills that you haven't used for a number of years at the same time that you're doing very high level and highly strategic work as well. Uh, so I happen to love the diversity that I have, uh, but it's definitely not for everyone. I've heard from uh, quite a few CMOs actually that they have this fear and the fear is that when they spend a little bit too much time being in the CMO role at a large company, like the one you're describing, when you have like 20, 30 people, they lose, they, they really become numb to, they don't really know how to do it themselves. They, they are so, they, they're just the manager. They, they basically, the whole day is just sitting with people talking about, oh, you want this compensation increase. Oh, you want that, that thing, the vacation, what's your problem? So it's basically one-on-one -on -one team, team management, team management. You, they never even touch that marketing piece. And that's where that's their fear. Like they're not being marketers. There's certainly some truth to that. Now I love the, what I love most about marketing is how creativity can drive commercial value for brands. I also love, I've always been a customer first marketer. So even when I had massive mandates and massive teams, I would go deeper than most of my CMO peers would have in understanding the customer. I would look for every opportunity to stay connected with customers, whether it was walking the floors of Holt Renfrew and having spontaneous conversations with customers, whether it was calling, patching into a call center, 
at Rogers, I would find any way possible to stay close to the customer and get that firsthand learning. So that part came, comes very naturally to me in the startup mm -hmm. side of it as well. And then I, I absolutely love managing and mentoring talent. Um, so my, I have an opportunity at Q over time to build a team. Um, I don't have, and I'm, I have an opportunity to mentor beyond marketing across the team at Key, which I'm loving as well. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's not for the faint of heart because you're still doing that high level strategic thinking. It's both, right? Work. Yeah, and you're also, you're at the executive table. So it's not just about marketing expertise that I'm bringing to my conversations and my day-to-day -day work. It's business expertise and working with my executive colleagues to advance all aspects of the business work. So I'm certainly so just, not bored. Oh, that's that's really important. I know, for, especially for, for some people, it's super important. I was just going to say, like, you're, you made this a great point. Like, I can only imagine how good insights you could get by walking the floor at Halt and just talking to people. Like, that would be the priceless thing, you, the insight, the real customer insight you can't really get anywhere when people are in it. You, you never know, right, what, what you can find. You're absolutely right. For six years, I was the president of an agency um, called EJWT, and our biggest client was Tim Horton. So we're, our agency team is based in downtown Toronto, and the typical whole, right, sorry, the typical Tim Horton's customer is not a downtown Toronto person. So we would come up with all these great campaigns and do all of this great marketing um, and not be as connected. So we implemented a practice the agency where when every new campaign was starting, we actually sent our agency team out to different Tim Hortons outside of the downtown Toronto area. And they would just see how they would sit there, they'd have a coffee, they'd have spontaneous chats with people, Tim Hortons customers, and just to see how people were engaging with or weren't engaging with the marketing that we'd done in a smaller town dynamic kept us all really rooted in who this customer was. And I think that whether it's a luxury, high, high net worth value customer or a truck driver whose favorite getaway is coffee at Tim Hortons, you really need to find ways to have that one-on-one -on -one interaction and exposure and conversations with uh, the consumers you're trying to entice to do business with. Yeah, it reminds me of Robert Schulz being a barista and serving coffee to people. He's, <laughs> it's a very, very similar approach. Well, and it's absolutely invaluable learning. And that's absolutely something that I, I embrace and embracing at Key, which is a great opportunity for me as the CMO. But I'm also finding that consumers who are early adopters to Key, to give them a voice and a role in what we're building uh, is incredibly rewarding for them as well. So there's value for our, the consumers and the key clients that we have, and there's incredible value for Key as an organization to be learning and engaging with and involving our consumers in what we're doing. And so I was at one of your events that was before last year. I think it was just uh, late last year or early. Actually, it probably was early this year uh, at Key. And it was super interesting, like your whole vision to transform the real estate, uh, the real estate market in Toronto and, and I would assume other cities. So with that, tell us a little bit about the vision and what are you working on and how fundamentally the concept is different to what people are used to because it's, it is radically different. I would love to share more about Key. Um, and I love the fact that you have called out just how radically different it is. We actually have two patents pending and a few more in the hopper. So it, lots of companies talk about how they're innovating, but the fact that we are gonna have a number of patents really helps 
demonstrate to the degree to which we're innovating. So at our heart, our mission is to create a world where real estate can be a source of prosperity and freedom for everyone. And the need for what we're building is unbelievably significant. Uh, so if you look at home ownership globally, it's unaffordable in 90% of global cities today. And that's based on research from the World Economic Forum. Sadly, it's one of those lists that Toronto scores high on that I wish Toronto didn't score as high on. But today in Toronto, it takes an average of 21 years to save enough for a down payment in order to get in and own a home in Toronto. So you think about that's two decades that that's crazy. aspiring, it's nuts. <laughs> But two decades where aspiring homeowners are struggling to save the recommended 20% down payment. And that's two decades where they're actually not building their wealth and benefiting from building equity in real estate. Uh, so that's a big part of why we're launching in Toronto and we will absolutely be scaling to cities globally. Because we, we honestly believe that there are way too many people that are locked out of owning today. Mm. And we also believe that home ownership should be a dream that is still accessible for people that are working hard uh, and investing. So the way we're able to do it is we can give, it's a co-ownership model um, and we are able to give people a chance to start owning and building equity and live in a condo with just two point, initial investment of 2.5% of the value of the condo. So that's 2.5% instead of the typical 20%. And with key, they also don't need to commit to a mortgage. So if you think about the two major roadblocks that are preventing people from mm -hmm. getting into real estate in downtown Toronto, it's a really high down payment that takes far too long to save for and also having to qualify for a mortgage. So there's tons of benefits for the owner resident, um, but some of your listeners are probably thinking, okay, that sounds great, but it also sounds too good to be true. So how can we make it work? The way we make it work is it's not just aspiring homeowners who really want to have a chance to own and build wealth in cities like Toronto. There are also a lot of large and institutional investors who look at residential real estate in cities like Toronto and say they know it's a highly desirable investment. Um, it's hard to do on a scalable way and it's also hard to do unless you're willing to like build the buildings, manage the buildings, and manage the tenants. And there are a lot of large institutional investors that just don't want all the headaches and hassles that come along mm -hmm. with doing that. So we work with those large institutional investors. They invest in key. We use that money to go out and buy existing suites in the downtown core. Longer term, we're also going to be building entire communities from high-rise buildings from the ground up. And because the investors are investing a lot of the upfront equity, we can then allow consumers to start owning and live in the suites with just 2.5%. The more the consumers invest over time, each time they invest more, the amount they pay in rent each month goes down. So their ownership grows and their cost to live different rent perspective comes down. So it really is a great opportunity to get into the market and start building that wealth. And you Another, have strong, you, you have big, and you can, you, uh, you have like strong backers, like you have like really strong companies behind you, which I think uh, anybody, well, I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll link it in the show notes somewhere, but it's not like you just like five people and you're like, hey, let's do this. It's like, there's a, there's a lot of financial infrastructure in place to make that happen. 
We are working with two of the top investment banks globally. Uh, so, and the investor meetings that we're having, we're absolutely getting good traction and high level of interest. And on the consumer side, we've got a, a list of keychain holders who are holding their place in line for when our first suites become available. So our model is absolutely resonating with investors and with consumers. And when we talk to developers as well, because with key, they have a chance to have, if they're building an entire building, instead of going out and finding 400 different people to buy each of their suites and take over their condo, with us, it's a one buyer model. So we're actually able to buy um, real estate pre-construction at a discount, which drives additional revenue for us as well. That's very cool. And where's, uh, what's the, what's the go to market, like time or the date where you're thinking like you would be good to start, like for somebody to sign up for the program in Toronto, let's say, or it's already started. So our first suites will be available uh, later this year. Uh, and we've got, had great consumer demand. So we've actually created a keychain program where, where people can actually hold their place in line. And we have uh, close to 100 people that are already holding their place in line for our first suites that will be available later this year. Well, I'll be looking. Uh, I'll be looking to see more on that because I mean your events were great, and uh, that's I guess one of the one of the marketing things that you did interestingly well, and you're doing it right now with virtual events is that you have a small team, you have a lot of constraints, and you have a radical idea. Like, how could you? connect with it with your potential buyers like what are some of the ways you could do it and you chose to do in-person events uh, talk to me a little bit about how that worked and how did you transition from there to do zoom events because i think you have a really interesting value proposition thank you so we were doing uh, a number of lunch and learn sessions we would host one at our offices at least once a month and then we would also go out to different companies uh, where they would they had a number of people that were interested in learning more about keys. So we would arrive with a free lunch and take 45 minutes to share our model with them um, and answer any questions that they have. And we had a lot of interest from um, technology companies. We had a lot of interest from marketing firms uh, and from different finance companies as well. So we would go in and actually have a curated lunch and learn with them uh, where they're uh, primarily millennials, but anyone they had from an employee perspective that was interested in learning more about this model would come and learn more and get a chance to meet me and uh, at least one, if not both of our co-founders. With, with the pandemic, like everyone else, we had no choice but to go online. Uh, so we've been doing a number of different webinars. We initially were doing 60 minute long webinars and we're getting great, um, tons of people were signing up and attending them. But a couple months into it, we were also seeing that people were experiencing a lot of webinar and Zoom fatigue because so many businesses that had never done webinars before were jumping on a bandwagon and doing webinars. So it, it lost its appeal. So what we then did was scale down our approach to webinars and initially we went from 60 minutes to 45 minutes. Now we do it in 30 minutes. And then we also have 15 minute calls um, at any time uh, you can schedule a 15-minute call with me or with one of our co-founders, Daniel, 
or another of my colleague, Mark McLean, has been a realtor for 30 years. He is the former president of the Toronto Real Estate Board. So he also is available for 15 minute calls. So once a month, you can attend the 30 minute webinar and we answer questions live in that. Or if that doesn't work with your schedule, uh, you can have a 15 minute call with any of us uh, at any time. So really working to our prospect schedule instead of our own. So very, very unscalable marketing, uh, but <laughs> for a good reason. <laughs> for good reason. And I will also say, when I initially thought, well, how much can you share about key and learn about the prospect in 15 minutes? It's actually amazing how much you can share about your company and how much you can learn from the person you're talking to in that, in as short as 15 minutes. So I'm still lead each of those calls um, with more knowledge about what's resonating in our model and what people are really excited about and what might not be resonating in our model so we can continue to fine tune our pitch. And in the feedback I've heard from the consumers I'm speaking to, they also get a ton of value out of that 15 minutes. And then um, they might attend a webinar or they can always reach out to me by email. I can answer questions that way or we can schedule another call. So while it's longer term not scalable, it's an incredibly productive use of my time and incredibly powerful as far as staying close to our consumers and really understanding how best to position key in a way that's relevant and provides the most benefit and insight to them. I was just gonna say that like, this is like the best customer research slash sales slash positioning uh, slash like offer development that you can get. Absolutely. What about Allison? What about getting get what, what about getting registrations uh, for an in person event? And then how does it, did that change to Zoom? Were you using like LinkedIn? Were you using Facebook events? Then doing ads for that? Where were you getting your most people? Like where were you getting most signups from? Until six weeks ago, we had not done any paid advertising. Um, so up until then, it was really building out our social media following uh, and communicating our webinars um, that way and building out our email list as well. So we have a fairly, we built a fairly sizable email subscriber list. And then we started testing on a very small budget scale doing Facebook and Instagram ads six weeks ago. And we're doing phenomenally well with those. Um, I've literally spent hundreds of dollars, not even thousands of dollars yet. Um, but we've been able to drive um, incredible response. So our overall response so far is over 20%. And our CPA is well below industry. We're sitting at a CPA of $4 and the industry average is $18. Mm. So I think a big part of our success is we're, we're testing a lot. Uh, we're going out with small budgets to start but we're really focused on the benefit for the consumer instead of what's in it from our perspective. And that's clearly resonating because it's driving a lot more email signups. It's driving a lot of webinar signups. It's also driving a lot of um, keychain holder signups. So it's working very well. Hmm. And I, I assume the, the social media posts that you did to get the registrations were primarily tapping into founder network at first, right? Um, uh, certainly, that was one of the networks we were tapping into, um, but we were also tapping into um, communities of interest that are more likely to um, embrace new, new newness and innovation. So, um, the techno any technology um, community tends to 
be more open to change and innovation. A lot of creative industries and marketing industries are very open to wanting to know what's new and what's innovative. So we've reached out to them. We've also found that the finance industry is very interested in what we're doing. So I wouldn't have thought that initially, but we're seeing great um, pickup from industries like finance as, and some legal professions as well. Uh, and really, really embracing our model. Right. I'm sure a lot of influencers would want to know more about the concept and a lot of their audiences as well, right? Absolutely. The other big audience that we're embracing and a lot of uh, prop tech businesses don't embrace are the realtor community. So Toronto has over 54,000 realtors. It's the biggest um, realtor community in the world for a city of our size. And a lot of prop tech companies see them as the competition. We've taken a very different approach and see realtors as great advocates for us. So our model creates a new revenue stream for realtors and they, by them sharing news about what Kia is doing with their clients who can't qualify for a mortgage or haven't yet saved enough for a down payment, they have become a very strong referral network for us. So embracing they, them as a way to get our word out and help build credibility and awareness for Kia uh, has also been uh, something that Prop tech companies don't traditionally do, but something that has worked really well for us by doing, uh, by not going, by not following the norm on that one. Yeah, it's a good place to, uh, definitely a huge audience to tap into. Absolutely. But you did something interesting. You, uh, I would, like compared to lots and lots of businesses, especially who are starting out, you didn't want to talk to journalists uh, for some reason. I want to like you share that story because I think this is interesting and a bit controversial. Well, not controversial, but it get, goes against the common trends uh, when the business is taken off. You're absolutely right. And I absolutely want to talk to journalists and I absolutely want to drive a lot of great press coverage for Key, just not yet. And that's where it's a fundamental, fundamentally different approach than most startups and early stage companies. They go out trying to get massive press right from the beginning um, and they become the latest shiny object and then there's no follow through and they become style over substance. So we have made a very deliberate decision that we, we will not be pursuing press coverage until we have our first suites in the market and our first owner residents living in the suite so that we can actually bring to life and demonstrate how our model is working and how it's positively changing home ownership for aspiring first-time homeowners. And it, it's fascinating because so many people go, go the route of press and we could absolutely get a ton of great coverage now. I've had a few different national and international publications reach out to us because there's, if maybe they're finding us on social, they're starting to hear about us. And they've reached out and said, we would love to interview you. And um, now I've had two of them say, when I've said, I would love to do an interview. Our founders would love to do an interview, just not yet. They're just gobsmacked. It's like, and most of them have covered either real estate or technology. And now I've heard a couple of times that even in their long career, they've never had someone say, thanks, but not yet. Everyone's usually just like so happy to get up and tell their story. Uh, That's so one, of the, one of the advantages of being a smaller podcast show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
hopefully you don't have a lot of journalists listening to you because they'll be reaching out to me and saying, Allison, what are you doing? <laughs> this is this is a this is gonna be a good post. One way how to to get <laughs> how to get an interview that you can that Global Mail can get. Absolutely. <laughs> that could be a good hook. <laughs> What about Allison? I think this is uh, would be curious to to hear what you think. So you do so you're doing events, you're doing webinars, and you are not you're you're waiting until you are ready to share your results with the press. What can the B two B community learn from these principles? Uh, let's say if, if a company is a startup, if a company is a mid sized company, uh, what can they do? in a similar way or maybe in an unscalable way that they're not doing right now that could be could move them in the right direction? I think there isn't one size fits all solution. So the best advice I can give is that every business owner and every marketer needs to be very clear in how their product benefits the people that they're trying to attract and to really have a deep understanding of who this product will resonate with um, and also be able to reinforce why their product is different or better than competitors they might have. It's so important to lead with what's in it for your customers and really explain why your product is better suited than competitors to deliver on those needs. And in having those conversations and in having that level of understanding, you will see unique opportunities to reach those prospects. That's certainly true of key. It's also true when I was heading up marketing and customer experience at Holt Renfrew, it was true when I was working at Rogers. Regardless of the size of the company, regardless of the maturity of the brand, really understanding your consumer and focusing on, on them first will drive you to the best potential marketing techniques. What do you think about not jumping too, far, too quickly into automating things? And like, for example, like you could, I'm sure you could get, send a survey to the people who attend your webinar and you're just like, wow, that's better, right? Like you could get more people, but you don't do that. Uh, what, would, what would be your thoughts on, on starting with that? So we need to, from my perspective, we need to do a little bit of both. So the, um, after a webinar, we do a quick three question survey so that we can learn on what resonated and what didn't. But if that was all we were doing, um, it would be a very surface level of interest. What I'm also doing in scheduling the 15 minute calls with prospects, uh, as soon as someone joins our keychain program, which is our waiting list, I actually have a 30 minute call with them where I get their insights and learning on what attracted them to key, what need or issue are we helping solve for them. And then I go into a, great discussion and get their feedback on what type of community they want to build, what types of services and benefits and amenities would they ideally like to see. So right from signing up on our waiting list, they immediately have a voice and a chance to share their thoughts on what we're building and how we can customize it to best suit their needs. So that's not something I could automate. Um, and if I did automate it, it would be a one-way conversation, whereas having the, whether it's a Zoom call or a phone call, having open-ended questions where they can share their thoughts and inviting them in to be my co-collaborator has been incredibly powerful for us as a business. But it's also wonderful to see how flattered our consumers are. Like it, it, the fact that I'm taking the time to reach out to them and I want to hear from them and I want to learn from them. And, 
and we're open to their feedback and they are helping evolve our model. That's incredibly powerful and a great way to build advocacy. So, so few businesses do that. So few. <laughs> Allison, where's everyone can find you online? I'm Allison at keyliving.com. And I'm oh. also on social media. LinkedIn is uh, my favorite professional network for sure. I'll uh, link it all in the show notes so everybody can go check out what you're doing because I think this is super cool. And uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you, Allison. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the invite. All right, guys, that's it. Hope you liked the episode. If you did, you can go on uh, LinkedIn and connect with Allison or just drop her an email if you have any questions about this uh, homeownership uh, startup and the mission that Key Living is on at the moment. And if you have any questions for me or you'd like to have, you have any suggestions who I should interview next or what I should be talking about more or less of, then by all means, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the preferred way. I'm not that good with an email. So LinkedIn, it's in my show notes as always. And I will see you uh, for an episode number 73. Peace.